What's going on, y'all? Jovan Miller. Again, we are here for another episode of the Give It Context podcast. Twitter, IG, JoviNation23. Email, peaceofmind2327. Let's get straight into it. We are on the second part of whether student athletes, college student athletes should be paid. Again, this is a very, very big topic in the game, well, in the world of sports right now, especially with the amount of money that, uh, you know, schools seem to be generating on on a consistent basis. So I think it's important, again, to always lay out both sides of an equation because it is in our best interest, of course, to get in full disclosure, maybe what some of the biggest grievances are when it comes to whether these players should be paid up, whether student athletes should be paid or not. So, I think my last point, if I'm not mistaken, I told you guys, hopefully if you're listening, um, and I haven't bored you (laughs) too much, or hopefully I'm interesting enough to where you want to give another listen, I told you guys to look up a few names. A few of them were Todd Gurley, who is a starting running back now for um, the Super Bowl-bound Los Angeles Rams. I think I believe I looked up, I told you to look up Johnny Manziel, uh, Terrell Pryor, Devere Posey, and my favorite of all time, the Fab Five. Now, um, to preface what we're going to talk about today, we're just, like I said, this is the second part. Mind you, I have not given you my opinion on whether players should be paid or not yet. And I will make sure to keep that cliffhanger out there as long as I can because I think that this is a very, very, you know, interesting topic. I understand both sides of it. I just, like I said, this is another episode really to just lay out what you're going to be dealing with, what your some of the the pitfalls of both sides of things. Um it is very important to understand again just exactly what you're going to be getting yourself into if we go down the slippery slope that is um, um, that is paying you know college athletes so let's get into the examples first and then I'll break down of you know I'll break down um, a few things on the academic side or you know, things of that nature I, again I've kind of went on both sides the teeter-totter is very important in all of this because it is paramount that somebody gets a perspective of um like i said both sides so todd Gurley. todd Gurley um was the 10th overall draft pick and i'm going to say right now he's what is 2018 so in 2015 i believe he came into the league from the university of georgia um, he was considered the best running back in the class, and I think he has proven to do that so far in his career. He's already a first-team All-Pro twice, back-to-back years, uh, following this year. And like I said, his team is headed to the Super Bowl, and he was a large part of that. Of course, they're a stacked team as well, but he was, again, the best running back in football. He got paid this offseason a guaranteed of $45 million. That's the biggest heaviest NFL contract for a running back in regard to guaranteed money. Um, I will fact check on that, but I'm pretty sure of it. Again, sports is my life, so I wouldn't lie to you. 
Um, Todd Gurley, the significant story about him was that he ended up missing, besides a few injuries when he was in uh, college, he also ended up being suspended by the University of Georgia, or excuse me, by the NCAA while he was at the University of Georgia because Todd Gurley was caught, um, not caught, I can't say that's a wrong word, but uh, technically he violated you know, NCAA violation, and that was to uh, uh, to receive money or improper benefits, as they call it, for signing memorabilia. We'll get into memorabilia in a minute, and I actually will explain exactly what that means and exactly how that works. But Todd Gurley signed uh, over a thousand items in which he wanted to receive money. Um, in his particular case, I think what's noted is that a lot of people need to pay attention. And I say this uh, respectfully, but um, not everybody feels the same way about your college or university as you do. Todd Gurley is from Tarboro, North Carolina. So him going from North Carolina to Georgia, of course, he went down there for the quality of football first, not to represent a state or anything of that nature. So to those of you who are a diehard, whatever fan you are, of course I am, I'm a Syracuse, you know, fan or whatever, just know, I've learned this, especially from being on the other side of the athletic part, is that not everybody feels the same way that you do about your, you know, about your team, about your college, the college, your university. So keep that in proper perspective. So when I used to see a lot of these really negative things uh, about, you know, players who take improper benefits or what is so selfish to his teammates, yada, yada, whoa, hold up there. This young man in particular is, he is, he's making your school proud, technically. He's giving you more exposure than you usually would have. And let's be honest, when you're a juggernaut like a University of Georgia football and Alabama football one of those football factories, you're going to have a lot of people that are going to you know, become diehard fans or they're born diehard fans, but not everybody feels the same way about your university as you do. Reality checks come in every single week for any player out there. They know what I'm talking about. I'm doing something I love to do. And I'm talking as a college student athlete right now. As a student athlete, I'm doing something I love. I do. I love it. I didn't say that I would do it for free. Now, a lot of people would equate that to, oh, well, you know, your scholarship, your scholarship, your scholarship. Well, after a course of time, okay, I know that my physical abilities will be gone, which is why I guess people always value the idea of the education. It technically can take you further. Boom. Depending on what side you look at. Again, I like to play both sides of the fence on this particular issue because I think it is important to lay out the importance of both sides. So when Todd Gurley sat out, or excuse me, not sat out, but was suspended, I don't believe he ever went back, or he came back to the University of Georgia after his four-game suspension, I believe, went on, ended, ended up getting hurt, and that was the end of his time at uh, at University of Georgia. But he was in a peculiar situation. He was in a situation that most athletes are not in. And that is, 
he kind of knew, let's be honest, that he was going to go on to play professionally. As I mentioned before on the on part one, there are 85 scholarship players on a football team, and all 85 of those guys believe that they're going to the league. And I'll tell you right now, of those 85, 10 might go to, might go to the pros. Five of them might actually, you know, might maintain a roster spot. And two of them will actually be outstanding players. So out of 85 that are on that team, that's all you're going to get. So I want you to understand, you know, just how small those chances are. I think you see commercials all the time when they talk about, um, if I'm not mistaken, they usually used to talk about um, this NCAA commercial where it talks about 1% or something like that will go on to play professionally. The rest of us will hit the job force. And it's something you know along those lines. Very educational, but it's very important to understand that part too. Um, next example, Johnny Manziel. Johnny Manziel was the Heisman Trophy winner in 2000. I'm going to say 14. Again, fact check. Uh, but Johnny Manziel won the Heisman Trophy uh, at Texas A&M, drafted in the first round. I'm going to say 2015 or 14. Again, need to fact check on that. But Johnny Manziel was drafted in the first round. I guess I can give you that level of truth uh, by the Cleveland Browns. He unfortunately is no longer in the league. God, you know, God bless him. He's got a lot of you know stuff going on. But anyway. Johnny Manziel, when he was in college, he also was a player who was suspended for signing memorabilia. Uh, he signed over, they said, 2,000 different items. And, of course, the idea is to sign it with the intent to eventually make some money from it. Now, a lot of these athletes don't understand that when they sign it, <laughs> it's not for them to make money. <laughs> it's for somebody else to make money off of them. That's where exploitation comes in. Uh, another example, Terrell Pryor and Devere Posey. They were football players, college football players at the, uh, oh, excuse me, at the, yes, I'm supposed to say the Ohio State University. And they technically traded in a very, uh, I, I guess, sacred uh, piece of, piece of, uh, or important item that is a part of, I guess, the tradition of going to Ohio State University, but they gave those, gave, I think it were a pair of pants, I guess, but they gave those to, um, I guess, a tattoo parlor um, in exchange for tattoos because they didn't have any money. So they figured that the value of the pants or, um, you know, that sacred piece of clothing, whatever it was, again, I have to fact check, goodness gracious, I sound all over the place today, but they ended up losing the rest of their careers no, at well, I should say their college careers. Terrell Pryor is a receiver in the NFL. As is, well, Devere Posey got drafted um, by the Houston Texans. I don't think he's in the league anymore, um, but I think he's playing in the Canadian League, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, that being said, you have three examples: college football, in particular, football players who sign memorabilia with the intent to make money off of it. Now, I'll ask you hypothetically. Are they wrong? 
reason why I ask are they wrong is because there's a lot of times where these players, um, and I've heard a few things as far as, well, you know, they can get this much or they can make this much or, you know, education is blah, 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 blah. Listen, um, biggest crowd I ever played in front of was 48,970 national championship. Uh, was, we played Johns Hopkins uh, up at Gillette Stadium where the Patriots play. Okay. You don't hit, it doesn't hit you how many people are there. And that initial moment, it's unbelievable just how much attraction you can get from one event. Now, I want you to think about that. That's a lacrosse event. So 48,000, that's a lot of people, but we're talking football. And I believe America, you know, is, I mean, excuse me, America in particular, we're starting to view college football or football in general as America's new pastime because nothing generates the kind of revenue that football, both college and professional generates. More important issue, and a much bigger example, and this is like I've said before, my favorite 30 for 30 on ESPN of all time is the Fab Five. My favorite is because they were the, the ringleaders of, of defining exactly what player exploitation meant. Now, if you've never watched it before, you should watch it. It's unbelievable, um, unbelievable story, unreal story. But it was the it was the beginning of what you would call the the one and done sort of player, where you had these really highly touted freshmen come in and play right away. Fab Five: Jimmy King, Jalen Rose, Chris Webber, Ray Jackson, and Jawan Howard. That was the Fab Five. And anyway, they all went to University of Michigan. Unfortunately, you know, look, they went to two national championships back-to-back years and lost. One they lost uh, The one they lost to um, Duke, the second one they lost to North Carolina. So those players, you know, they had started a fad in particular where actually I'll maybe post a few pictures of it, but... After I watched it, it was the Fab Five um, came out in 2000. The ESPN 30 for 30 came out in 2010, I believe. It inspired me so much that after that, I actually started wearing <laughs> black socks and black cleats, even when we were in all orange or all white. Now, like I said, I have I can fact check you on that and show you that. But it was, I was so captivated by one thing in particular. There, the year that they actually. Really, or the thing that got them really going was not only they were five black males playing on a team, you had um, so many boosters around them, but then they had started what at the time seemed like a very unpopular fed, and that was wearing, like I said, black socks with black sneakers, but they made it into a fad. Jalen Rhodes speaks about in that 30 for 30, how the year after they lost in the national championship, that next year, he was walking by. Um, a fan store in uh, on University of Michigan, and he said he saw in the window uh, a picture of all five of them, and then a pair of sn- a black sneakers and black Nike socks, saying Fab Five, you know, Fab Five sneakers. It's a really, really big, you know, glaring issue. There is because, yes, of course, they called themselves the Fab Five. That's one thing. But somebody else was profiting from it. 
I'll tell a story about when I was at Syracuse University, and it actually happened for the, you know, I had to ask him about it one day. I'm not going to say the player's name. Um, he's playing professionally still, so like I said, I don't want to get him in trouble. If he's listening, I'll probably message him after this and tell him I told the story, but love him. When we used to walk out to practice in my time at Syracuse University from 2007 to 2011, um, I am a part of the winningest class in school history. We played a career 68 games. <laughs> we lost eight of them. So we were a very hot topic, especially on a lot of the lacrosse um, websites and such, because it was cool to see the amount of um, success we had had in that, that set of time. But when we used to walk out to practice, there used to be these guys out in the, in, in, in the uh, parking lot, and they used to have posters. And you said posters of us, they'd be an action shot. And the guy would just, you know, have a, a Sharpie and say, hey, could you sign this for me or whatever? And most of us, we thought nothing of it. So we'd sign it and we'd go, you know, we'd walk to practice, go to practice. Well, one day I started noticing there was this one guy on my team, like I said, when the guys would walk up to him, he would get the marker and he would scribble all over picture and somebody might say wow what an a-hole why would he do that and I asked him I said why do you keep doing that he said Jovan after we sign that he goes that guy is going to go somewhere outside of a lacrosse game and he's going to ask somebody for $50 for that you know because somebody's going to want that um, action shot with our autograph and that guy who's in the parking lot is going to make $50 off of us just signing that one piece of memorabilia. Let that one sink in. Now, again, we're talking on a much smaller scale. I'm talking about lacrosse. I'm talking about a non-revenue sport, which is why when you start thinking about paying a player, it's a slippery slope. It is going to be very hard to determine who gets what for what they do for the university. Title IX in particular, it opens the door to giving, uh, especially women in particular, but it's, it's non-discriminatory um, in its nature, but it gives the opportunity for um, you, know, you to add more sports to your, your college or university. And as a result, that means that in most cases, especially at the Division I level, which I will get into as well, is that you are more than likely going to, I think in most cases, your football team, your basketball team, football team in particular, is the one that will consistently generate revenue, depending on where you go, of course. And with that also being said, what about the other sports? Because I can, I can literally say that's unfortunate. It's unfortunate and it's also unfair that I work just as hard, I just may not play football or basketball. I don't play a revenue-making sport. Just imagine a situation where the athletes of volleyball, women's volleyball, water polo, you know, water polo, um, soccer, uh, any of these sports. Uh, we have a really good field hockey team at Syracuse. Imagine all those those teams saying, "You know what? We don't want to play anymore because you're not paying us. You're only playing the guys who make money for the school." So 
I think the NCAA, the issue is, I mean, its bigger issue right now is that, look, the money's too good. We're too far into this now to look back. The NCAA, if you've ever noticed about the NCAA, which is my least favorite thing on, on the planet, uh, the NCAA loves to uh, be judge and juror for anything that has to do with uh, taking improper benefits. They're never, ever, ever visible when a scandal happens. Because they always say that that comes down to the college or university's decision. Penn State, they didn't have anything to say. Michigan State, nothing to say. Louisville, nothing to say. All of those situations happen when those college, when the, or excuse me, Baylor University as well with the football team. All those situations had to be handled not by NCAA, but by the college or university. Even though there was a whole bunch of things going on that the NCAA easily could have been involved in. So let that sink in. So they usually call themselves the judge and juror when it comes to things that are, well, we are noble and academic or whatever. Again, this is a three-part series, might be a four-part series. So I haven't even gotten into some of the more, <laughs> the the biggest money makers uh, for college sports. I haven't even gotten into some of the, you know, some of the really, really good ones. There's a few things I want to actually share with you before, you know, this part of the conversation is over. So what you're going to see, and I promise you this, um, in the coming years, we'll say give or take, give it another two years or so. There's going to be a team, a basketball team, numerous basketball teams that are going to say, you know what? I'm not going to play this basketball game. You know what game it's going to be? It's going to be a Final Four game. Because I want you guys to do a little homework for me. And this is to those who are truly invested in this podcast. Just look up how much money the college basketball NCAA tournament makes especially the Final Four and the National Championship. little homework assignment for you. I'll put it like this. When I lived in England for a year, uh, there's a five-hour difference. Uh, we are five hours ahead when I was in England. I watched the Syracuse-UNC uh, National Semifinal game from my phone. They said in that care, and I'm not, I can't remember where it was played, but Syracuse lost to North Carolina in the, uh, the national semifinal, the final four. And there was something in the estimate of over 70,000 people for that basketball game. And I had shared with you guys early, you know, in the first episode of this that Syracuse basketball, our average attendance is over 26,000. When we get Duke and Carolina that comes to the Carrier Dome, they get over 35000 consistently. So you double that number for basketball, not including those viewerships on, um, that are sitting at home or having watch parties 
alumni, etc., etc., who go to the game. So the ticket price is super high. You're going to see it very soon. There's going to be a bunch of players that are going to influence the next generation. And these kids are going to say, we're not playing for free anymore. Mark my words on that. I also want to throw in the University of Northwest, or I think it's Northwestern University. I hate when people, <laughs> University of, and it's you know the other way. I think it's Northwestern University. But anyway, I believe it was two or three years ago, the Northwestern football team was trying to unionize. Because if they would have been able to validate unionizing, think about it. They are going to be paid employees by the school. Now, I want you to think about what that slippery slope looks like. You guys go, let's say uh, you go, and we're, we're talking football right now. You go to play you know, a football game at Michigan, whatever. You know, Northwestern goes to Michigan, and they get the, you know, they get the brakes beat off them. You know, it's a 70 to you know, 24 you know, drubbing. Coach gets into the locker room and he starts cussing crazy. You guys are going to run this much and, you know, I am so ashamed of you, yada, yada, yada. The ability to unionize, do you know what the players can say? The players can officially say, no, we're not. You see, the problem is when it comes to the, the university, the coaches, players, is that that is not a that's technically a working relationship, although the players don't know that they're working. Most of the time, you are in a position where you're thinking that you're playing just for the love of the game. But look, anybody you know who is truly a competitor, look, you would love to play in front of one hundred and ten thousand people. I mean, that would be amazing, right? But at the same time, when you when you're not looking at some of the you know, the, and when you're looking into the fray, there's a huge, there's a much bigger issue there. And like I said, you're doing something you love, but you're technically doing it for free. Now, anybody who says, you know, with the college tuition, I gave you the numbers on the first episode. We're talking in the realm of a $200,000, you know, college education which in itself is a crazy amount to think about for a college education. I make that back off of one football game 100-fold. Basketball game, one, you know, five, you know 50, uh, 50 times over, I make that money back for the university because of what I do physically, what I, what I do athletically. So whether it be fair or not, that is a circumstance that you're, that you're technically in. I don't know if I told you to do this last time, but it is important to know. There are a few players that, let's be honest, they didn't want to go to college. So they didn't. Brandon Jennings had committed, and he's a basketball player, had committed to the University of Arizona um, via Oak Hill Academy. Very big powerhouse uh, basketball school. Carmelo, love you. Anyway, and Brandon Jennings said, you know what? I don't want to do this. I don't want to play. So he said, I don't want to go to college. So Brandon Jennings ended up going abroad for a year before coming back to the States to be drafted. So he went, he signed a professional contract 
and I believe he played in China, but I'd have to check again. I'm all over the place. I gotta, I gotta get my act together, man. But anyway, Brandon Jennings would go on to play one year abroad before getting drafted to play basketball in the NBA. Emmanuel Moutier did the same thing. Emmanuel Moutier had committed to play basketball for Larry Brown at SMU, Southern Methodist University. He said, you know what? I don't want to go to college. So he went to China for a year before coming back to the States and getting drafted. A lot of players, what you're going to start seeing is, look, again, I ask hypothetically, and this is to those on the academic side, is can you please tell me what is the benefit of that one year of education? That freshman year in particular, you don't even get into your major or even decide what your major is until you're a junior. You take prereq classes up until a certain point. Of course, you have area of focus that you're initially trying to go towards. And as you figure that out, you try to you start to specify. When you are um, in the college setting, freshman to sophomore to junior year in particular, freshman year, you're just taking the broadest things ever. Sophomore year, you're slowly but surely starting to slim that down. And by your junior year, you truly know the focus, the area of focus that you want to go towards. So if I can't even get to junior year, what is the benefit of the freshman year? What is the benefit of it? And that's to be honest, right now, college basketball is being seen as an incubator for a lot of tomorrow's talent, which is why right now everybody is in a, a, a rave right now for the Duke basketball team. They have four players right now that are more than likely going to go somewhere from number one to number 20, all on one team, which maybe we'll talk about that another day in, in regard to, you know, how much hype that everybody gets before, you know, they actually prove themselves. But like I said, we'll come to that another day. The last thing I'll say for this episode, and again, this will be a, a third and a fourth part, is... How colleges and universities get around having to pay a player is very simple. When a football player, basketball player, any sport, um, when I was at Syracuse, we, they did a cool idea where they put our last names on the back of our helmets. I thought that was pretty cool. But anyway, when you're getting to this, uh, when you're doing that sort of thing, the way they get around it is very simple. They just don't, if they put a jersey up in a, you know, in a team store, they just don't put your last name on it. So they don't owe you anything. So if you go into the, again, Todd Gurley was the example earlier. A kid walks into a Georgia football store and says, can I get a Todd Gurley jersey? The person will say, well, the number three jerseys are right over there. That's the number he wore at, uh, at Georgia. Well, there's a number three jersey over there. The kid buys it not knowing is that they don't have to, they don't owe Todd Gurley anything because Todd Gurley's name is not on the back of it. So the way that uh, uh, these athletes, excuse me, how these uh, colleges and universities get around having to pay players is not putting their names on the stuff that they sell in those stores. Last thing I'll talk about, not really talk about, the last thing I'll bring up, and again, that'll be a cliffhanger for next time. Uh, we're going to address the transfer rules regarding uh, regarding any sport. Transfer rules. We'll talk about how much coaches make, academic fraud, 
And a new one that has become very apparent that's going to be an issue very soon is going to be sports betting. That is going to open a whole nother can of worms. So, I hope you guys have enjoyed this episode of the Give It Context podcast. Again, if you want to get in contact with me, uh, my IG and what's the name? My IG and my Twitter. Goodness gracious, I just had a brain fart there. IG and Twitter are Jovi Nation23. And then my email. Where is it? Yeah, my email is peace of mind. 2327 at gmail.com. Anyway, let's send you out with some great throwback.